Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, so I'm sitting here, and I am talking to J.B. Douglas, and... uh, JB, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself for everyone listening? Of course. Yeah. Hi. Um, my name is JB. I uh, I'm a forager and a food maker. That's kind of my what I what I like to identify as. Um, I direct some of the culinary and community development work for Forage Market. Um, and then outside of that space, I uh, do a lot of uh, my own recipe development work with Wild Foods. Um, and we've, we've a little, couple little baskets, um, uh, just spewing things that I do, but, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, most of what I do is I work, is, is my work at Foraged, um, doing wildhood recipe development. And then I'm in grad school right now for, um, a master's in sustainable food systems. So sustainable food systems what exactly does that entail are we talking like long-term vision for uh the environment for people for what 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 does that entail that is a great question and it's a lot of what the program is trying to dissect so um this is the first cohort of the program ever um it's at the culinary institute of america so um i've been looking for like a sustainable food or foraging or at the botanical program for a while um none that were like fitting my needs but this this program came out um uh which was exciting because it's like specifically through a culinary lens it's not just like an ag program or just not just like a public health program so a lot of the preliminary foundational work that we're doing is around um like defining systems systems thinking and defining what sustainability means like how have humans 
conceptualize sustainability throughout history? Um, how do we conceptualize it today? What are the components that make something sustainable or unsustainable? Um, and then how do you apply that framework to the mass entanglement and complexity of the global food system? Politics, it's kind of, money, <laughs> it's, it's I I I kid I kid about this, but I but it's it's not a joke. With like just about every week, the assignment will be like, look at this major world problem, dissect all the ways in which it is terrible, um, and then fix it. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah. in a week, <laughs> in a week, yeah. this week, my assignment is to literally analyze like a whole variety of global and local food insecurity programs and hunger assistance programs, and then um, propose uh, sustainable alternatives. So it is quite literally to uh, solve world hunger this week. So I'll, I'll let you know on Monday um, how I figured that out. So like, what's crazy about that? And I, and you see a lot of people, and I think it's the wrong approach, but like giving meals to people in Africa. And when they do mm. that, the food that they're giving them is not part of their regional diet, number one. Number two, mm -hmm. it's going to cause long-term health problems. We've seen it. We've seen it with the indigenous here already, mm -hmm. what we've done by giving them only certain staples to feed themselves on. It, I just find it fascinating and crazy and, and it angers me at the same time. It's like, what the heck? Or the other thing, yes, the emissions and the greenhouse gases that are put off by all these commercial feedlots, right? Yes, absolutely horrible. Should we be doing it differently? Yes. How can you do it on a mass scale? Problem. But Huge. if you get yeah. other farmers on board, and the perfect example of this is uh, white oak pastures. And mm. Will, I believe, Will Winans or Wainans, something like that is the guy's name that started. But you know what I'm talking about, right? And the mm -hmm. regenerative, uh, well, actually, what does he call it? The Serengeti method with the rotational and uh, intermingling of certain species at the same time and the effects that it has on the soil and the plants, the feet, everything about that place is the model of the way most farms should probably be ran. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it is it totally is there and there are a lot of examples of small and mid-size and some large-scale farms that are successfully doing that um but there are so many complex challenges i know <laughs> trying to scale it right socially politically i mean it just every time you look at it from a different angle there's another there's another challenge um and so a lot of what we're doing is like trying to find the highest leverage points within a system to be like, okay, we've narrowed scope down to this, to this thing. How do we effectually like effectually make a change here in a way that it will actually ripple out to other parts of the system. So, because we can't tackle everything all at once, right? Everything has a thousand different problems at once. So I'm kind of focused in on uh, the ways that wild foods and the wild food industry have the potential to create alternatives to mainstream food systems um and what we need to do as an industry to like move towards uh, a sustainable growth of that industry that positively affects the environment positively affects people and social lives and public health um and positively contributes to the economy um and that's a challenge right <laughs> so, there's so much that goes into that are we talking just like like riparian you know forests everywhere or what what are we doing just making like I think there's a lot of 
I think there's a lot of potential models and a lot we have to explore. Um, what I do, so I, I can't say that I have like clear cut solutions <laughs> for like what we should be doing. Of course I don't. But there's um, visions, right? Like there's a but vision. there's visions. And I think that they're, what I see as I've been, you know, more and more immersed in the foraging community in America, like, and as I have my work at Forage, getting to talk to so many different foragers and forest farmers and small scale farmers all across the country, I see a lot of people that really care passionately and do amazing work individually. And we lack a lot of this broader organization or broader community structures that can really propel us forward. Um, and I'm so, so I'm really interested in, in working towards some sort of organizational structure that allows us to communicate better, to share resources better, to advocate for just policy together, um, uh, to partner with like park services to remove invasive inedible invasives, to do to yeah. do all sorts of different. There's like a whole plethora of projects that we as an industry, as a community, could be doing to positively affect change in in the food system and in the environment. Um, but we need some sort of structure that is getting us to a place where we can commune and organize together, right? Yeah. That's, That's kind of what I'm... It kind of reminds me point. when you just said that. And we're going to jump back into that because there's a lot there. But <laughs> So, Ivy, somebody, I, I honestly think somebody dumped, like, landscaping that they dug out. Mm. And they dumped their yard waste in a parking lot of one of the state parks that I love to forage and hunt in, especially that hunt area. And there was some like English Ivy in there and mm. it has spread across the ground, shading out and killing off all kinds of native species. And every time I walk through there, one, it saddens me and two, it makes me so mad, but I don't even know the proper channels to go about getting rid of it eradicating it before it does even more damage i mean it's taken right. up like an acre or more of landscape already that's how like within a year yeah that's crazy and right and i don't want to like you know like lump any like fault or blame towards whatever park services are managing that area like who knows what their right. systems are who knows what's on their radar but you as like an individual who is you know pretty knowledgeable and cares about these things and has a personal connection to it is nearby it shouldn't feel like you hit a, a wall the second that you notice something something happening like that like you should be able to like know what resources you have at your hands or like a place to talk about it or a place to report it or a place for those communication that communication to move forward um because we have all of these like citizen scientists and all of these conservation like at-home conservationists all over the country who care about these things, but most of us are looking at our books and going to the woods by ourselves. <laughs> and I think there we have like just the potential is is like insane if we were to just you know work together. Yeah, I almost thought about a little gorilla activity there, but yeah, <laughs> I know it's not the right thing, and I haven't. I don't know. I'm going to go talk to the park service though and see what we can take care of and manage yeah. to do because it's crazy the devastation that it's caused within, I mean, mm. literally one year from the time I was there to went back to that area. And I, I was just astonished how fast yeah. the rate of 
like the growth rate was and how much it covered. And man, I can't imagine what it's going to be like in another year or two. Yeah, I was just, I mean, similar story. I was just back in California a month or two ago um, uh, where I grew up in Sacramento. Uh, and there was a, there's a pond right by my house growing up that I walked just about every single day um, after school growing up and in, in my teen teens. Um, and I had like a, you know, a, a rough understanding of what was going on there, but not a, um, not as much knowledge as I have now. Um, but I knew about the blackberry bushes. Um, and then as I got into foraging, I, and I was like doing some more research and I was like visiting home again, I was noticing that they were Himalayan blackberries. And I was like, oh, these are not native. These are kind of aggressive. And then as I continue to go back there, I'm only back there for a couple of days a year. Um, it's grown larger and larger and larger. And I go back there now with this whole new yeah. framework and understanding. And I can see, I'm like, actually, I've been watching this patch for 15 years. I can see how it's spread. I can see what native species it's choked out. I can see the ways that the beavers no longer have a place for their dam. I can see the way that uh, it has like prevented these species from doing this. And now this algae is taking over here. And it's sad. Yeah, it's hard yeah. to, it's hard to look at. And you, you, we, like again, I wanna I wanna feel like I can take action. And there's such, you know, interesting actions to be taken there, considering that blackberries and blackberry leaves are all edible. And there's like so much potential function and use for those things in a way that would positively affect the environment and create food products for people. But we have we live in this culture, this structure where it's like, don't touch it yeah right and yeah and the park services are notoriously difficult to get in touch with um and don't really want to talk to foragers so yeah such an interesting dynamic there which kind of rolls into what you previously mentioned which was uh getting park services in different places to actually acknowledge the invasives and then consume them or let us take them right um and remove them so can let's go into that and kind of what you meant by that yeah, I think this is a this is definitely a vision rather than like a lived perfect plan, of course. Like this is something that has like been floating in my head for a while. Um there was a uh there's a, a paper that came out, I think it was 2018, Balin Linekin, I think it is. It's about it's about um wild food laws, uh wild harvest laws in America. And he specifically looks at um the national park system, the 59 national parks and looks at like the legality of the regulations that they produce that they've set out about foraging and what it says about you know what those regulations are rooted in he tries to decipher how they're developed and why they're developed that way tries to interpret why they change every year um and there's a lot of unclarity and confusion around it um but what he argues looking at the pol looking at policy and what is put out by um like the, these park directors um, is that foragers are, you know, not seen as conservationists and they're, uh, you know, not seen as, they're, they're seen as like a threat rather than like an asset. So what I'm interested in is, like part of what I'm interested in is like working towards policy that legalizes foraging um, overall and works closely. And I think to do that, we have to work closely with park services and land management services because we're on the same team. We don't, we, no one, none of us want, you know, a thousand foragers going to the same park and stripping something of something that shouldn't be happening. Right. Right? <laughs> none, none of us want that. Um, uh, but I do think we have to open up the channels of communication to collaborate on projects like, for example, if someone in the South is like, I've got all this kudzu, 
like let's assemble like let's assemble a team to like clear out what if we like set up a, uh, a supply chain to like a food incubator nearby or like a co-packing facility that can then process all of those leaves into some some sort of product what if we start a mission to like eradicate japanese knotweed in a certain um, section in the north uh why can't we use the the manpower that we have in this community to partner with the service eradicate that species uh make turn into pickles and sell those <laughs> to people or give them to food banks like they, i don't under like we have there's so much available to us but we have really lacked i think in from my perspective we lack the organization to like make vision projects like that happen yeah so Japanese knotweed, can you really eradicate it? <laughs> through, great question. Through foraging. <laughs> great question. Great, great question. Um, I mean, obvi- I mean, obviously, I'm not. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say it's gonna be like gone tomorrow. <laughs> but something that really like stuck stuck with me one time. I wish I remember who said this, but they were like, if very evil people can eradicate nearly eradicate the american bison in you know that's we have the ability to eradicate an invasive species like it is not like or at least to try right i'm not gonna say i'm not gonna like purport that we can completely wipe out something that is like that invasive and regenerates that easily um but i certainly think there's value in removing a lot of it and turning it into food for people yeah man it's american bison that whole thing Whew. okay yeah <laughs> there's sorry, a lot sorry, there heavy. we're yeah. not gonna impact that or uh, yeah. you know unpack that at all um but yeah no i agree with that that's what kind of worries me though about i mean there's so much gray now to where most people probably wouldn't care with foraging, you know? There's so much gray area in most places. Or some say, you know, open to mushroom hunting, but it doesn't say, hey, you can't really take these berries that are growing there as well. You know, there's no laws there in place now. It almost makes me wonder, though, if you started playing with the laws in some places, it opens up, you know, Pandora's box and like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> did you do you ever like think about it through that lens or is it i i understand what you're saying i, I think <laughs> i think for the large i think by and large though uh so there are certainly states and counties and parks with gray area laws totally there are and that is its own nightmare of a problem <clears throat> but there are also a lot of states and parks and counties with prohibitive or highly restrictive laws that are rooted based in yeah. racist policy that it was like designed to like oh, strip food yeah. sovereignty away from cultures and were designed to keep um, specifically enslaved black Americans from being able to, you know, supplement the diets that they, that they, right. that they needed. Keep them on a share crop or something. Oh, wow. That's right. <laughs> so I think that there, I mean, is anyone surprised that any bad law in America is, oh, is there that's, as a racism? But that's no. what I was alluding to. Not like that, yeah. but it, it just seems to me anytime more regulation is brought in, if anything, it should be like, I don't know, it just seems like deregulation 
with protections right. or sanctions, you know, some type of protections in that's place exactly what for I'm, other things. Yeah, that's exactly that's, what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm I'm really focused on, I I'm focused on like the anti-foraging laws, yeah. the ones that are like specifically prohibited that don't take into take into account that foragers are conservationists themselves, and somehow imply that we can't work with um, environmentalists and park services to do good. Right. Right. No, I, I, I love that. So let me ask you this then. Um, ramps. Are, yeah. are you the one leaf guy or are you, if they're tight clusters, uh, are you I, thinning them? This is so triggering to me <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you say you're a forager, and that is like the first question. Um, <laughs> the second question is, do you know Alexis Nelson? <laughs> um, the uh, but also like running. So I run a lot of the, do a lot of the social content for Forage Market, and if we post a picture of a ramp and do not include a thirty minute lecture, we get reamed. <laughs> like, and I. <laughs> So I'm a little scared to to uh, to take a hard stance on this, but I will tell you where I'm at. Um, I do think that there are problems in certain regions with ramps being overharvested. They take a long time to regenerate. I think that is a fair concern. Um, I do believe that, like, if you, there are times uh, where maybe the one leaf is probably the best way to go for that patch, but. I'm really resistant to any sort of strict um, or quantitative foraging guidelines. Right. I I don't I don't love the like thirty percent rule. I don't love the like like the this or the that like the black and white of it. There is no substitution in my eyes for knowing the land intimately, walking it frequently, watching how species are behaving, and learning to tend that patch um ramps are alliums and alliums have bulbs that need uh space to grow and if two bulbs are growing on top of each other one should probably be taken away to thin the patch so the patch grows back stronger yes and <laughs> but a lot of people are not ready to hear that so well not only um, that like not not only are they not ready to hear it but they don't fully understand because they don't they don't truly have that connection. An armchair forager is different than somebody who actually develops a relationship, like you said, walking through, learning that land, knowing that land, recognizing and remembering weather patterns and things that have happened in mm. the past and predictability of what's going to happen in the future. I intimately know some pieces of land so well that I can tell you where things are going or how good or bad it's going to be dependent upon the weather, right? That that affects yeah. it, you know, whether it's a flood year or it's a drought and all those things need to be considered. And people just need to realize that unless they have that connection with the land or they're intimate with that piece, probably shouldn't speak up at all. They should shut the mouth, open the eyes, and let the ears and the eyes take it in and, and then see and make a judgment. But it's it's one of those things that people are also greedy and, yeah. and over-harvest and then let it spoil in the refrigerator. Mm. If, if, if I can't take it and preserve it or do something with it or consume it, I'm not taking it. 
Yeah, that is one of, <laughs> like, when I say I don't like the quantitative rules, like, this is one of those qualitative rules that I live by, which is that, like, even if I'm looking at it and there is a healthy patch of something and it's in peak harvest mode, if I do not, in the moment, have know the exact thing that I'm going to do with it, this is me personally, if I don't know the exact thing I'm going to do with it, I do not harvest. I need to know like exactly what meal I'm going to put it into or exactly what preservation technique I'm going to use. I need to know what day I'm going to, to, to use it. Otherwise, like there's, there's no point to me. Like it's the same method. I wouldn't go to the grocery store and just like grab food. I didn't, I wasn't thinking, I didn't think I would, I would cook through at some point. Um, like I'm not gonna spend my money on that and I don't need to affect that ecosystem. Um, uh, if I'm not gonna, if it's not, if I'm not gonna like actually utilize it, if it's an invasive, sometimes I harvest it anyways, but <laughs> If I see some autumn olives, I might grab some before I know what to do with it. But aside from that, yeah, I'm, I'm like I'm really intentional before I pick. And and I feel like so many kids, and, and maybe they need Aesop's fables or something like that in their life to teach them that because they don't have it, the, the people just don't have that sense of you know responsibility to to have the stewardship and say, you know. I want, but if I don't need it, then I'm not going to take it. And and there's mm-hmm. just that consumerism that society has built that keeps people wanting more and wanting it instantly rather than like we talked about earlier, just walking through the woods and not looking for one specific thing, but letting yourself just go within the moment and flow through and find things. And- yeah. <laughs> and I'll, I'll acknowledge like there is definitely some privilege with that act like i like there i am not food insecure so for me finding something in the wood like not finding something in the woods is not going to affect my ability to eat dinner that night and so i think that there are some populations some cultures um especially in america that do need to like have like a different relationship to the woods when they go out there if like that is a real food source for them a main food source for them um but I think for a lot of us that are engaged in the space that are not food insecure, yeah, I agree that that, that like consumerism really creeps in that, um, and it's hard to like shake yourself of that sometimes because that's just so pervasive everywhere that we're everywhere in America, right? Yeah, I think the only thing that I've ever seen, as far as people that actually were pretty good stewards of the land, but for some reason overtook was quail. I mean, you know what I mean? Because it was an ethical people. They lived off the land for the most part throughout the South, uh, lived off the land and and managed it to where they could continue to live off the land and harvest these different things. Typically did not over harvest. But with the quail, I think there might have been some other factors involved as far as fertility or some things that the discoveries weren't growing and they're still using quail baskets and harvesting all these quail and eventually... I mean, they're pretty much gone. <laughs> like, it's yeah, you know. Well, that's this is an interesting, you know, um, thing that you bring up around the like complexities of why people harvest or eat what they eat. Right? It's not just about never just about calories. Like, there are so many like social factors at play, economic factors at play, emotional factors at play, his like uh, cultural history pack- mm-hmm. uh, practices at play that like weave this really complex web of like why someone wants to or needs to eat something at a certain moment. And it's hard to like detangle the ethics of any of those choices. Even you're like, oh, this, this, this thing is, is, 
the environment is coming out of balance in this in this moment we have to look at why and that is like a really hard thing to solve for you know yeah yeah and that's like the bison i mean that's a pretty clear-cut answer yeah <laughs> you know i mean and it's sad it's disgusting and it's sad um, a lot of people thought you know they were just doing it for you know the commercial aspects and there's so many of them right and then you eventually just send out sharpshooters and waste them and like that saddens me so much it makes yeah. me think though like living here in illinois you have towns called elk grove right why do you think it was named that because there were elk and yeah. completely eradicated out i mean just the greedy man that came and did that it just it's crazy but it's all those different things and then to see the resurgence of things like in my lifetime. And I've mentioned it many times on this podcast, but it was just so cool to be a part of it as a child to see the reintrodu reintroduction of uh, turkeys, you know, and, and to see them flourish enough to where they opened up a hunting season for them. But mm. now I'm noticing a decline and I don't think anything's really being done about it now. So you know, it's one of those things we have to keep our, our eye on it. And uh, honestly, I think it's agricultural practices that are impacting it. Hmm. Um, you know, hmm. it's, it's, but nobody wants to hear that, you know. Oh, I would love to hear that. I'm, <laughs> I just spent, uh, I just did a residency a few weeks ago in California, just touring a whole bunch of, of farms of all different scales and sizes. And I walked away with a um, much more complex view on what farms are doing in America. The um, impact is ridiculous. Yeah. Not to mention just the fact that, like, I hate, I love fall, but I hate harvest season. What? And, Why? And I'm not talking, like, small-scale harvest season. I'm talking, I mean, Ohio's the same way. Illinois is oh. the same way. Commercial agriculture, big farms, oh, how they're okay. taking it out, throwing you know, toxic pesticides and herbicides yeah. into the air along with mold and everything else. And yeah. you can't even see sunsets <laughs> Yeah, because it's in the air. Like that is it's... crazy. That is not a sustainable model. No, <laughs> <laughs> like not even a little bit. And what's scarier, I don't want to get too doomsday here. Well, <laughs> but, but um, what's, what's scarier is like, global populations are still growing and we like literally can't scale those models when i when i'm saying when we're saying it's not sustainable like yes it is bad for the environment it's bad for human health it's bad for the it's, it's bad for everything it's it's like already bad <laughs> but we literally can't scale it any further like if we keep doing that we're just like just more people will die and more ecosystems will get torn but out that's what i find and i find it crazy because it but it's hard to detangle yourself from that system as it's been built because so much of that is for better. I mean, I'm not saying this is, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not, I'm not advocating for this, but, or for the way the system is the like global agricultural system is working right now, but we, it like feeds a lot of people and we can't just strip those systems away without, <laughs> without having major, even more hunger problems than we currently have. Like there, <laughs> the complexity of that is insane. And then you look at them in America specifically, we are losing, I think the 
pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to throw out a fact that like without it, without um, understand a, a source, but um, uh, the most recent da- data that I looked at was we were, we were losing about 2000 acres of farmland every day in America for also development, whatever sale or whatever. And we have like a decreasing number of farmers in America. So we're just like running out of, we're running out of land and people to produce the amount of food, like a higher scale of food. And it's like putting so much pressure on those big ag systems that are already a sustainable nightmare. Um, and I think we have to, we have some, some big problems to fix fast. So that's a rabbit hole in itself because yeah, <laughs> like what's crazy is it's like four corporations are buying up the mass yeah. majority of the farmland. Mm-hmm. And that, but we're not going to even go down that way. Yeah, road. yeah. This is but, not, this is not a but farming what, podcast. What but. was crazy is, um, so like you were talking about, like we produce so much of it and stuff. But w- what I find insane is that we're subsidizing fuels because we have such a surplus of, you know, grain, and then saying, mm-hmm. yeah, these fuels are super cheap, but they're not actually cheap if you look at production costs and subsidization and everything else along with it. It's like what are we doing? Scale it back, yeah. turn it into something that could be way more beneficial. And I think we'd be going down a better path. Like, right. why can't we, why can't we figure out like a Cahokia situation? You know, like, And this is <laughs> because so communal kind of living isn't, I know. No, no, but like <laughs> very fair and valid. I, I, I'll I'll sp- I'll spare you the, <laughs> the the ten extra rabbit holes around yeah <laughs> around football, but I do <laughs> to bring it back. Uh, this is why I I genuinely honestly believe that we in the wild food space have the potential to like make an impact on things, like add alternatives to people's diets, contribute in positive ways. Uh, we just need to organize. <laughs> We just need to be organized. Absolutely. Well, that's like, okay, prime example, right? Farm raised or grown spinach on your average mm. farm and the nutritional value pretty much only comes from the crap they spray into the fields or put into the soil to 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 grow these plants, right? And so mm-hmm. everything is depleted within that, but yeah, you've got lamb's quarter out there better actually contains copper, which you need to break down magnesium yeah. and zinc and all these other minerals. And it's like, what are we doing with that? Like, what, what, what is going on here? Go in your yard. The fact that the government actually used to put out pamphlets during wartime and educate people on all these things. And then yeah. now all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. That's a weed. You need to spray that and get yeah. rid of it. Get it out of your lawn. And it's like something is wrong here. It's broken. And 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 the mindset, like, I'll talk to guys at work and they'll joke jokingly, but make fun of the fact 
the one that I do forage or I'll bring in dishes and they'll all eat it. And then I'll tell them that it's foraged. And then so the next week it'll be like, oh, is that foraged? You know, a bagel or whatever <laughs> as a joke. Right. But it's like, that's how far we've been become disconnected yeah. from it. It's, it's super interesting. I was, I've been reading a few um, uh, papers about the, the, the cultural interest and participation in foraging in times of war and in times of economic downturn. Um, uh, and it is really interesting to see how it was viewed, you know, early 20th century versus, versus now. Um, but this gets to a, a really interesting point about backyards and um, what's considered a weed. Um, a couple of things. The first is that like, <laughs> this is not, that's not a, a uniquely, american problem but it is an american problem in a way that it is not in many other cultures there are many other cultural cultures today that are very normalized to grabbing what we consider weeds in their yard or like having herb gardens in spaces that are like an american would would never think to 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 put a garden right um and i i don't think that everybody in america needs to forage in the woods every weekend like i don't think that like everybody needs to like learn to forage but imagine what we would have if everybody did have an awareness right of the plants that were growing wild in their yards and even if they were even if that was just their greens for one meal a week like that that simplicity has the potential to make major impact right um like i think we need like top-down ideas and we also need those grassroots efforts um and educating people around weeds and all sorts of other plants that grow wild in their in their yard and those and those that, that basic knowledge and understanding the demystification of nature um i think have a huge impact on the way that people view food buy food eat food um and it's just like one of those like little things that I think a lot of the foods industry could be a leader on, you know? Yeah. No, I, yeah, I hate, <laughs> hate the bad rap or how did, how did it even become labeled as a weed? They're plants. They're plants. Yeah. It's not a weed. It's a plant and it has a purpose, whatever that purpose is. It may have been, you know, misconstrued or whatever, but like dandelions. <laughs> That one's crazy to me. So some of the so, some of them, I'm like, oh, like I I love cleavers. I'm a cleaver. I'm an absolute cleaver fiend. Love a cleaver. I could understand why, like, if you're a farm and they are, you know, climbing up, cl- entangling into your crop, making it harder to harvest. Like, if you if that data is showing like the the yields are down because they are, you know, in, entangling with the crop. Um, or even if you like, you know, have like, if, if you're raising sheep and those like, uh, gets the cleavers get stuck in the wool that decreases the value of it. It's harder to process. Like I can understand where the eradication of them in certain spaces, like is understandable, but I, I can't get past the fact that like they're still edible and useful and medicinal. Like, I, I don't understand like why, why it became take it out and throw it away and not 
take it out and eat it, take it out and use it, take it out and share it. Like that, like the function of it is, is crazy to me. And Dandelion's like, Dandelion's never hurt anyone. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why Dandelion's got the bad rap. That one is crazy. Like they're the worst ever though. Apparently, you know, anything you see that's like a weed killer commercial or anything. It's all Dandelion. Yes. (laughs) And I'm, I'm like, that one's like, also, if, if if people like have any awareness of foraging, they're like mushrooms in the woods eating dandelions. Like that, that I feel like that's like one of the top, right. the top ones. It's like one of the first ones that people learn. It's like one of the ones that like, you know, the the weird family member that is like, oh, you're foragers and you eat dandelions. Like they know that dandelions are edible. I just don't understand why that one. <laughs> we'll never we'll, ne- we'll never fathom. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty nuts. That'd be interesting, like that. <laughs> that'd be an interesting interview. I bet we could. I bet we could track down who who started the the, the ad campaign for weed killers that and chose the dandelion. Some somebody out there made that choice <laughs> fifty years ago. It's a dandelion conspiracy theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so, um, you you kind of mentioned like the food and media aspect of what you do. Um, yeah. And then how how does that like play a part in your foraging and what you're doing yeah so um this is this is tied partially largely to my work at foraged um and then uh um also just kind of my outside work like as a creative person like as an artistic outlet um uh i to to create demand for these products right to support the people that are harvesting to support the conservationists out there that are doing this work, the experimental forest farmers, like we have to create demand for their products. So I guess I should back up for two seconds and explain what Foraged does. Yeah, let's um, yeah, let's go into that. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm realizing <laughs> that as I started to launch into things. So uh, Foraged is um, an online marketplace for wild and specialty foods. So you can think of it like Etsy, but for Foraged and specialty foods. So foragers have shops on there farmers have shops on there um and then uh anyone can can go on discover new products discover new species buy them directly from the forager and it gets shipped right to their doorstep um so 90 percent of that money goes straight to the forager we take a 10 percent commission um but most your dollars are going directly to them to support their livelihood and support what they're doing what they care about um so it's a really cool model something i really I am very deeply passionate about. Um, I care about the proliferation of wild foods. I care about supporting small small food businesses. I care about democratizing food uh, food access. Um, and there's a lot that we have on the horizon to expand um, in all sorts of new ways that I can't wait to share with you when they come out. Uh, but uh, so part of my work um, on the culinary side of things is around the demand creation for the products, right? In the wild foods industry, like we all know dandelions, we all know how to cook them. Somebody that is like just learning that space may need to see pictures of dandelions being cooked, may need to see a couple different recipes in order to, to like feel assimilated into things, feel familiar with the techniques, um, you know, have to be able to compare it against something that they've made before in order to like put those dollars through that forager um and all and like my hope is also like when they purchase ingredients um from other foragers and 
um, and cook with them and share them with their family, like that inspires them to engage with the woods themselves and learn more themselves. Um, so uh, I produce a lot of the food media for Foraged. Um, so that's the recipe development work. That's like the copywriting around um, uh, food content. It's the food, it's the food styling and the photography and the editing. Um, it's any like video reels, video reels and um, content we do. So um, sometimes when I'm foraging, it's for my personal self, like my personal life, right? And then sometimes I'm I'm there um, with the intent of finding species that um, um, are properly sold by the foraging on the site, so that when I cook with that species and I do a video showing how to cook with it, and I craft a recipe that's designed to highlight its flavors or teach some sort of method about that um, species that then people are inspired to put those dollars towards those foragers. So it's all about um, driving ways to educate people, educate consumers and to drive support for the people that are harvesting our food. Um, so that's kind of like where my brain is at when I'm like foraging for media purposes. So quick question. Do you yeah. ever worry about the foragers selling the products on there that they're doing unethical things you know yeah taking this is a it, it kind of just in my mind i'm like oh man because there's there's some commercial foragers that i know that are super respectful they do know mm -hmm. the land they have the relationship with it and then there's some others that i've seen that just go traipsing through ripping out throwing it into a garbage bag and taking it to your local restaurant yeah. and selling it. And it's like, oh, what are you this doing? Is, this is a very fair question. And this is actually kind of one of the main things that we're tackling. So the first um, thing I'm going to say is that we have to date vetted every single forager that has come onto the site. Um, we meet with them via Zoom. They, they have to fill out an application. Um, they have to talk about their sustainable practices in that application. Um, we meet with them over video chat. We walk them through the, through the platform. And we like pretty strictly monitor um, what products they put on the site. Um, so all those things are in place to begin with. I'll also say it's kind of been a non-issue because we have established ourselves as a brand that cares about you know these things. And we are ourselves foragers and farmers. Um, like we're not just some tech bros that are building an app. <laughs> yeah, like right. we, <laughs> we are ourselves foragers and farmers. Um, uh, it's been, almost been a non-issue. The people that come to the site also ask those same questions and are really adamant about it and really care about it and are really earnest about it. Um, uh, and so it hasn't, we, we've only had to, we, it's been very rare that we've had to take corrective action um, or, we've, or we've spotted things that um, we had to ask questions about and open a conversation about. Um, for the most part, it's, it's been a non-issue and I'm really proud that like um, of the work and the people that we've been, we've been working with. That's awesome. That's that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, um, you you told like what Forage does and stuff like that. But so when you're developing something like right now, for instance, what are you looking forward to that you you know most likely want to create with or you know want to use for inspiration for something? Yeah, I'm really excited about what's coming up in the winter. So actually, just today, um, uh. Well, I guess it'll it'll have been out for a second when when this when this episode comes out. We just released a um a new Rewild Your Holiday. It's like a mini mini digital cookbook. 
um, that kind of walks through weaving some common wild species into classic holiday dishes um, as a way to like, again, introduce people to wild foods in a familiar setting. Um, so I'm a little like fresh off of, of that still. My brain has been like a little packed with that, pro that little project. Um, and I haven't opened up to what's coming, coming next. Um, but this will be my first winter with foraged. I started in February this year. So this will be my first winter proper. Um, and I'm really excited to just uh, sit down with the team and think through, like ask our vendors what they've got coming up, um, what they want to see more of, um, and then strategizing like what species do we need to highlight? Where do we need to put our efforts and our focus to get more sales to you guys as vendors and to educate the, the public in a way um, that feels you know fresh and exciting but um you know educational at the same yeah. time so like in my head for winter stuff i'm picturing like soups stews something hearty like yeah. bone broths amaranth sourdough breads like <laughs> yeah yeah i would love to do some more like um like wild grains and breads we haven't seen enough on the site to like merit that um those recipes yet but i've i've been like collecting my flowers and i've been like experimenting here and then i'm i'm so excited to dip into that um interesting they mentioned soups and stews i think that is like right at the alley for for winter of course um what i hear when you say soups and stews is something that is really core to a lot of the, to all the recipes that i develop which is that they're meant to be shared i think um th there is very rightfully an entire industry of like food and recipes and meals that are scaled for, for one or two people. Um, but <laughs> this, the specialness of, and the care and intent that goes into out when you're out in the woods um, and you have that experience and you want to come home and share it with a friend or a family or a neighbor or your community, um, or on the alternate side, if you're at the forager themselves, if you've like um, gone out on a, you know, maybe this is maybe, maybe buying chanterelles from a local forager is like, really new for you and super exciting like you want to have that moment of of communion and that moment of sharing with your with your friends so especially in winter just like you said with the soups and stews we're always scaling and thinking about what is the moment that it comes to the table and how is it being shared with um with people around you um, i'm never like shooting things that are um you know just in one little plate it's always about it's always stacks of plates. It's always large vessels um, because we know the importance of, of, of sharing in this community and in this space. Yeah. That's awesome. That's uh, I'm going to, so like, can you share any of the recipes from the like rewilding your holiday stuff? Is that, yeah, yeah I, okay. I think, yeah, I would be happy to, <laughs> I'm a, I guess I should make an assumption about what, when do you think this episode will air <laughs> soon? Okay. Pretty soon. <laughs> It should have, it should have, it was supposed to, it was supposed to, don't put this in. It was supposed to drop today. That's fine. It will, yeah. pro it, pro it probably will drop tomorrow, but somewhere in the next yeah, couple so days. Yeah, so it'll be out for about a week. Yeah. So Great. perfect. <laughs> perfect. Uh, yeah, I would be happy to share. So we've got, um, it's a mini cookbook. There's like seven full recipes in there. They reference a bunch of the other ones that are on the site. Um, but these are seven originals that have not been published anywhere else yet. Uh, some of them are riffs on, um, classic holiday dishes so um victoria granoff's simple is best dressing which is like a really pared down but really well written recipe um for like stuffing like big torn croutons 
uh, big herb, like rosemary, sage, thyme, parsley, like really classic herbs and just some celery, a little bit of onion. So we're taking that, but instead of using croutons, we're using wild rice. So I'm adapting that recipe, um, learning how to accentuate the nutty, nutty flavors of wild rice um, and adding in just enough herbs that it feels like it's has some of those classic flavors, um, but have it opening up all these possibilities for um, throwing in spice bush or carrot mm. seeds or <laughs> you know, like there's this whole world of um, uh, you know wild spices and herbs out there and so I, I try really hard with recipes to give something that feels foundational that is like highlighting one main thing so in this case the wild rice um, it's based off of a classic recipe so it's going to hit all of the same flavor notes that you're expecting to see but then I work in these little moments of options um, so I'm like if you want to keep this classic go in with those rose that rosemary sage in time if you're a forager yourself or if you want to try something new like try it with crushed sweet fern leaves and carrot seeds and um some uh, a little bit of yarrow or something like there, there's endless opportunities um so that's kind of like that's the the first one that the that the cookbook opens with and that's kind of the general structure for a lot of it so we've got a cranberry sauce that um you can uh is, is designed to be able to put in i think it's a half cup of any wild fruit you've got so i love doing cranberry autumn olive sauce um I trust it with huckleberries. It works with pop-off puree. Um, so just to give like that little extra interest and variety um, and options for what you have access to. Um, but it's still hitting that like big um, moment of sweetness, acidity, color, and like a hint of spice that you expect from the cranberry sauce on the table. Um, so uh, that's two. that's two of them. The, the other one I'll, I'll throw out in there that I'm really excited about is um, our autumn crunch pie. Uh, and that is a take okay. on a classic. It's a take on a classic pecan pie. Um, oh, this was actually, I do too. I love pecan pie. Um, <laughs> but this recipe is a really, it's a really great example of um, uh, my experience foraging. I think a lot of people's experience foraging where it, this entire community had to come together for this recipe to be um, created. So first, uh, my coworker, Emily, um, was the first one that was like, I am really thinking about pecan pies this season. And we have a lot of vendors that do hickory nuts and have wild pecans. Um, and I was like, that is a great idea. Let, let me let me dig into that and think about that. Um, uh, so I was able to, to get hickory nuts, uh, Elliot pecans, um, from a couple of foragers on on foraged I had black walnuts that I had bartered from a friend yes. nearby I had just come from California where I had been experimenting with um, valley oak acorns um, and I was make, making uh, uh, like acorn thumbprint, thumbprint cookies with them that was really good mm. so I had all these I had these extra like leached acorns from my place in California um, and I had just uh, gone chestnut foraging for the first time with a friend here um, who very graciously took me to a spot and showed me his technique for, um, for, you know, taking them out of the husk. Um, and so I had all these nuts from all these different parts of my life that came together um, to make this beautiful pie that was just like 10, like, so, like five different kinds of nuts looked so beautiful 
um, in the shot. It's like this whole range of colors and textures. Um, and it hits that same, those same important notes of that pecan pie, but it's got all, it's from all these different wild sources. And so I developed it in a way that you can use whatever nuts you have on hand, um, right? I did it with a bunch of different types. You can totally just choose one if you've got it. Um, and then the other kind of, uh, the other piece of um, balance that I kind of brought into the, into play is in the, the filling that goes around those nuts. Um, I tend to find like very sweet and cloying in a lot of, in a lot, in a, in a lot of pecan pies. So we've added in um, a little bit of miso and a little bit of apple cider vinegar. It's just like brightening things a little yeah. bit. That's that it's giving that like extra little something, something of the saltiness in there. So not a revolutionary technique to bring in acid or salt into a dessert. Um, but I think in this particular case, it like really mellows out that filling um, and it takes it to a place where it's like a little salty sweet. Um, so it's very much a dessert. It is very much a, a nut pie, uh, but it's got all this other, you know, story and and oomph and possibility to it, you know? Yeah. So like right now in my head, I am picturing chestnut flour, acorn flour, and wild rice flour, gluten-free yeah. crust, maple sugar used uh, <laughs> for the pecan yes. pie. Yes. <laughs> so what we, that was another, so. And now it's a oh, gluten-free pie and I can eat it. <laughs> this is, this is such a big, this is one of my, one of the things that is, I, I struggle with the most when I'm doing this recipe development is because, is, is often the goal to introduce one ingredient or introduce like one thing. Whereas I have this insane pantry <laughs> of bizarre ingredients and I could go ham on this entirely wild pie, but I have to like narrow it in. But to your point, uh, the the only the sweetener in the filling is not corn syrup. It is maple syrup because perfect. Again, we have yeah. a lot of. Yeah. Um, so the ingredient list outside of the wild forged ingredients are largely like um, uh, just common pantry staples so that um, you're really focused on just like understanding that one new ingredient, or that one new piece of the puzzle. Um, and you don't need to worry about, um, you know, sourcing an entire pantry of things. You don't need to worry about learning 10 new techniques. If you just want to get a starboard pie crust, or if you have a favorite gluten-free pie crust, <laughs> use that one. Absolutely use that one. Um, but, you know. Maybe some duck fat really... instead of the butter oh, for the crust. But <laughs> No, totally. Oh, that sounds so good. That is like a great little edge of savory in, in, in there too. Ooh, <laughs> that sounds, that sounds awesome. I love food. My problem is, is I just never take the, enough time to create it. Like I'll make some phenomenal dishes, but sometimes I just simple, get yeah. it cooked, eat it. It's going to be good anyway. Just highlight the natural, you know, being of whatever it is, you know? So exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, totally. I think that's super important. I, I always say, um, like my goal when I'm treating an ingredient is either to transform it or to elevate it. Um, I think, and I think both have like immense value. So if sometimes elevating it is just putting it on the plate as simply as possible and giving it all the attention it deserves with the least amount of ingredients possible. Right. Um, and sometimes elevating it is an entire complex yeah. <laughs> sauce underneath it right you never know i think there's it's equally valid to transform it beyond what people expect it to look like right 
um, turning something into a syrup or a puree that has, that you never usually see pureed before as a way to like see that ingredient in a new light. Um, I think both, so I think both transforming and elevating are equally powerful. And I think that it's totally valid and fair and also really important to do simple cooking like that sometimes. I think that is like some of the best cooking in the world is super, super, super simple. Yeah. I just made a braised pot roast the other mm. day and uh, acorn oil is what I was brushing on it. So now nice. it, like it has this like strange, you know, like almost orange kind of glow to it when it's like, yeah, I'm eating the leftovers and you heat it up and your mashed potatoes underneath, which would be awesome if it was like Wapato or something. But, uh, you know, working yeah. with what I got. <laughs> totally. Is the acorn oil from Sam Melissa? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, of yeah. course it is. I don't have well, uh, oil uh, press, but actually I've been looking. I might I might end up buying one. But that's on my that's on my Christmas list. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it's been awesome talking to you. I imagine we could probably continue on forever. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, before we go, uh, if you could just uh, kind of tell everybody where they could find your content, uh, reach out to you, all those great things. That would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the best way is through Instagram for sure. Um, I'm I'm at jbdouglas.food. Um, you'll see like GIFs and little fun pop art versions of the wild food that I create there. Um, and I'm pretty responsive on there. Please uh, DM me, let me know, uh, get in touch. Um, the other best way to support what I do is to check out forage.com. That's F-O-R-A-G-E-D.com. Um, again, when you shop there, that money is going directly to the foragers, the farmers and the small food makers, the herbalists. Um, uh, and soon to be hunters and fishermen as well. Oh. Uh, so, so it's going directly into their pockets. Um, and that is like the best way to support me and the work that I'm doing. Um, we're a small, we're a small team. There's just four of us on that, on, on the team, making everything run. Um, and we're really all about, you know, making the lives of these foragers better. Um, and the best way to do that is to check them out. That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing and, educating us and it was really unique and interesting conversation and kind of all over the place but <laughs> at the same time somehow it all came together so thank you so much absolutely thanks for having me lucas and once again thank you so much for listening to the publicly challenged podcast i hope you enjoyed the show and if you did please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to also if you could leave a review that would help us out and you could check us out on instagram or at publiclychallenge.com and once again thank you so much for listening to the show I'm Will Cooper, host of Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from Hunt Stand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.
When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.